really, if you put together um, self-giving love and death-defying faith, what you get, when you add those together, they equal peace. Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where three failed pastors, oh yeah, Alex, Kent, and Nathan, (laughs) are recovering from uh, our bad ideas about God and seeking to recover the good and wonderful gospel. And today, we're kind of hitting in the middle of a series called Recovering Faith. Yeah. And we're going to do a little interlude where we pick up on themes from last time. Last time, we turned the corner and we started to say how we are saved. We had been just focusing on what we need saving from. Hmm. We, we yes. turned the corner. We started to look at how we are saved. Yes. Uh, and in episode eight. And I want to recap that and kind of glance forward. I want to do an, uh, an overview and ask you to do an overview, overview for us of how we are saved. I want you to give us um, an explanation of the gospel. Yes. Um, faith. Christ, the cross, the blood, yeah, justification. Yeah. Uh, oh, know, sure, yeah, sanctification. <laughs> Just small theological. Wait, we're we're starting a little. We're starting a little late, so thirty-five minutes. Well, that's yeah. ex- that's perfect because I want a short summary, yeah, uh, sort of overview of how the gospel saves us. Mm, beautiful. But we'll start by doing a recap of last week. Okay. In oh, which, in which, mm-hmm. in which we said that. In summary form, you just said that we're saved by the faith of Christ, didn't we? Mostly, as opposed to a faith that um, that that uh, receives Christ's imputed righteousness alone, which has to be kept separate from our progressive sanctification lest we be saved by works. Yeah. We are instead saved by uh, the, uh, a, a faith in Christ that is a sharing in the faith of Christ himself. Right, yeah. So, is that a good way to say it? I think so, yeah. So, yeah, that's what I was remembering is that little difference between faith in Christ mm-hmm. or faith of Christ. Right, yeah. So that in, faith in Christ is, I think, what most evangelical Christians have are familiar with is that okay if i believe that jesus was the son of god and that he died for my sins and that mm-hmm. he, you know one day he's going to return and raise us all from the dead and you know we'll be with him in heaven that's the faith in christ yes but then that we're talking about this other nature order of faith which is actually it's like we've been given christ's own faith and it's been yeah like received and placed inside of us so that we're living that out. Yes. That's a different. And we're living by faith the way Christ lived by faith. Yeah. We have his faith in the father and we can entrust ourselves to the father like he entrusted himself to the father and then experience resurrection in ourselves like he experienced resurrection. Yes, so many, so many ways to go there. Yeah, yeah I was just going to say, I, I think that's helpful for me because it. Um, I think a lot, a lot of Christian traditions, it's either you have to believe the right things um, about God, or Jesus is just a good example. You know, and so when we're saying we have the faith of Christ, we're not just saying He's our example, but that there is an impartation of His 
spirit dwelling yeah. within us that's actually like actively working with us so that we participate in living out <laughs> not just yeah. the example but the actual uh, life of Christ in in our daily lives. Yeah, yeah. Can I just pick up on something Alex said? He was saying it seems like there's a version of Christianity that says it's about believing the right things. Right. There and and there's a question whether that really changes your life. There's another version of Christianity that's about following the example of Christ. Yeah, if we and, just yeah, if we just follow follow the examples of Jesus and you know, we're we're peaceful people, um, you know, we give to the poor, you, you know, a lot of those things which which is great, but it you know, I think a lot of times they equate to just some other form of moralism. Yeah. Rather than this living active thing that's like <laughs> actually working inside of us. Which um which draws on some of both, like it, there's there's a gospel message, there's a doctrinal content, there's a message to believe, um, the, and and yet there's also an experience to be had, which is the faith of Christ, and which is closely associated with the Spirit of Christ mm-hmm. dwelling in us, yes, guiding us through life, in which we're living out our lives after the pattern of Christ's uh, death and resurrection. Yeah, maybe not so much modeling his deeds in the gospels maybe not so much focused on modeling how he lived in the first century of israel but instead modeling the pattern of death and resurrection would you say that's an accurate yeah con uh distinction yeah definitely uh so the New Testament writers seem like they're really committed to this idea that Christ's coming is a fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, where Jeremiah promised that in those days, God would make a new covenant with his people, not like the one that he made with them on Sinai, but a covenant that would be within each person. Ezekiel 36 said similar, something similar, saying he, you know, God says he would put his spirit within his people, and so that they would be changed, they would have this desire to live righteously. So there's a subjective experience that the that the Christian system is inherently personal. Me and God. That it must be. Because Jeremiah goes farther and he says, when that happens, they won't teach each other. No one will say to anyone else, know the Lord, because they will all know me. God speaking through Jeremiah says, because on that day, I will forgive their sins. I'll do away with their sins. Wow, that seems pretty specific. And so there's this there's this writer that goes with the gospel message, and that is that it is the fulfillment of this prophecy for a covenant, an unwritten covenant. One that does not require human mediation or indoctrination. We, we have to... So we have to tether ourselves to this Jeremiah prophecy as the New Testament writers did. So when you get over to 1 John chapter 2, um, verse, uh, beginning around verse 18, uh, John says, uh, you know the truth and you don't need anyone to teach you. And, and he speaks of this truth coming in, in two ways, really. He says, when that which you heard 
So this is an oral message. That which you heard at the beginning is the truth, and there's no lie in it. And then he says, and you have an anointing from the Holy One. And as that anointing is true and is, in, and is no lie, you can hear that. So there is this audio, auditory message, this oral message, this proclamation. In Greek, it's the kerygma, that which is preached. So this isn't about teaching. Teaching uh, refers more to behavioral instruction, training, Okay. So you're just simply told, you've been informed, um, just like we would say a news anchor is not an educator. They just, mm-hmm. ideally, they say what has happened. Mm-hmm. So the essential role of other humans in our life is just that they would announce events that have taken place. And that having believed those events, John says in First John 2, that that's the truth and you have now the truth. You know, there's not extra stuff. It's not chapter one of the truth. It's not the prologue. It is the truth, period. Now, when John says you don't need anything further, then that includes 1 John. Do we get that? Because he's writing to people who've not really read 1 John yet. When Paul says you have the gospel in Galatians 1, and he says if anybody comes and preaches another gospel— let them be accursed. So he's saying this book isn't adding anything to the, your essential learning. So what we don't need is First John or the book of Galatians. So that I know that sounds threatening, but I'm just saying that that it was that these books, the New Testament books, by the way, the Galatians historically, and it, it seems to be the first book of the New Testament, the first written, mm-hmm. the first one written. So it's written to people who already have everything that they need to know. They have the new covenant. So I'm saying all this to say that there is a subjective personal experience of the new covenant. But then there is also this idea of accountability and and that we should call one another to conform to this new covenant. So how how do you have a subjective covenant that has a corporate expression? If everybody has a personal relationship, how can we be together in one? How can we exhort, reprove, rebuke, mm-hmm. as Paul tells Timothy to do? How other can there people? be a standard yeah. against which right. against which right. against which we're you're judged? We, yeah, and, and I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying here. It sounds like you're saying we don't need the Bible per se, right? We don't. Or maybe you're saying we don't need it at all. <laughs> no, I, I'm saying we don't need the Bible, but we are blessed to have the Bible. So Paul Paul gives a very short um, and uh, delineation, I guess, or a stating of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 that I think is very helpful. He says, you remember the thing that I shared with you at the first. Um, the NIV says of first importance, but it's because we have this reticence to say that the gospel is everything. But the Greek seems to say, this is the thing I shared with you at the first, not the most important thing to be followed by other less important things, but just simply this is it. When Paul says, I came and I decided to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified, it seems that that was everything. Okay, And so he says, I want to remind you that when I came, here's what I said. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, that he was seen by the 12 and then by 
500 brothers and by me last of all. Okay, boom, that's it. We're done. That's everything. But notice that he says, according to the scriptures. So yep. the scriptures stand as a witness. They, you know, they, they testify. They don't make the gospel true. Well, and they also, they're the background story that, that allows, that gives the meaning to the death of Christ. I mean, the death of Christ for sin, it makes sense uh, coming out of the Old Testament story. Right. And uh, so in that sense, we need the Old Testament mm-hmm. to really give the sense, give the meaning of these events. Would you agree sure. with that? Yes, I, I think that there's, uh, the way I envision it is that the gospel, that this new covenant, if you think of it as a, as a well, and this well has a definite perimeter, it's never getting wider around the top, okay? So that perimeter is the gospel. It's just those simple statements about Jesus, and specifically his death and his resurrection, so that's the perimeter. Now, below that, there is an unfathomable depth. And so as we, you can hear the gospel, I can say, and it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, I can say that God, God, the creator of all things, has sent his son, and become, who's become a human, who has lived a perfect life, and who died because of the the sins, our sins against him. And however, someone understands that in their context, the wrong things that we've done. And I can say that, but, you know, because he lived this righteous life and he died for our sake, death couldn't keep a hold on him. And he raised from the dead and he now rules at the right hand of God. And he offers you, um, forgiveness from your sins and salvation if you will, put your faith in him. And I can say that to anybody, anywhere, at any place. And whatever rudimentary faith that that evokes in them, they've begun the journey. Mm-hmm. doesn't really matter where they come from, how they understand that. As a matter of fact, the gospel draws content from the soil that it comes from. Um, so yes, the scriptures, but also not limited to. So it, it's, it, it would be helpful if after that person puts their faith in Christ— that you could teach them the Old Testament scriptures. And and maybe it's important, like in, in some of these, you know, missionary efforts where you give them the long story mm-hmm. and you say it began with creation, all that. It's probably helpful. But I would say where they lay that, the groundwork for our listeners' sake, where they're laying right. the groundwork, where they're telling the Old Testament stories right. before they tell the, the gospel story. Sure. So that they can interpret the gospel story in light of those Old Testament stories. Right. Right. And 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 I'm sure that's helpful. Um but I don't want to discount that in every culture where the gospel reaches, that, that, that the gospel has been waiting to get there, that God has prepared that culture to hear the gospel, and that, that each culture that receives the gospel is going to bring a new color and a nuance to the gospel's expression. So Don Richardson's famous book, The Peace Child, right? So the story is that he goes in Papua New Guinea, and he's trying to tell people the gospel, but it's just bouncing off, especially because this culture is so different. They're uh, cannibals and headhunters, and one of their great cultural values or virtues is betrayal. And so he tells them the story of Jesus, and they see um, Judas as the hero, you know, and that he was able to pull one over on such a great and intelligent man as Jesus. He's obviously brilliant. Mm-hmm. 
So they missed it all. But uh, then Richardson notices that there's this war between these two tribes and they're signing a treaty. And uh, the way that they ratify that treaty as a non-literate culture is that the chief goes into his hut and takes his baby son out of the arms of his shrieking wife and and walks across this field and gives that child to um, the opposing chief. And there's this idea of the peace child. So we're not going to cause any sort of provocation because your because my son now lives in your tribe. Right. And Richardson says, you know, boom, it opens up and talks about how God has given us his son as a peace child. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the tribes all convert and everything. Right. And so that's a way that the gospel was already in that culture. But it's also something that teaches us another nuance to the gospel Mm -hmm. as we see another culture embrace the gospel through their lens and through the way they've been shaped Mm -hmm. through history we appreciate our own message more we see it with a new emphasis a new milieu and um just like cornelius the the conversion of cornelius in the book of acts it's critical. Some people think that the book of Acts was written really just because of the story of Cornelius, both the buildup to that story and then the implications of it until we get to the Acts 15 council about this official statement that Gentiles don't have to become Jews to participate in the covenant of Abraham. Okay, so Cornelius is this Gentile. He's a seeker. Uh, and he is somebody who's interested in the God of the Jews, but he's not a Jewish person. God singles him out. He sends Peter to his house. And uh, Cornelius, what's so powerful about it is, is that God himself just reaches down, pours out the spirit on Cornelius and his household. And um, <clears throat> before he's circumcised, without being circumcised, and before he's baptized. So even even the human agency of baptism is precluded here not essential to what's going on just the proclamation of the message and the belief of in that message and now god has changed these people's hearts and the case made throughout the new testament is the presence of the holy spirit is christian circumcision mm-hmm. it is that distinctive and so god circumcises cornelius spiritually by pouring out his spirit on him. And that what the way Luke depicts, especially those original 12 apostles, like he's taken a lot of trouble to write a whole gospel about those 12 guys and their relationship with Jesus. He obviously highly respects them, but they are learning. And that's what's astonishing about the book of Acts. You just don't depict your prophets as learning along the way as getting it wrong and needing to get together and compare notes and all of that. That's just not what you do unless the truth is resident in this seed, this small message that they have and that they, like we, are constantly watching it unfold in new settings. So I say all that to say, yes, the scripture is important as a witness. It is, I think, God-ordained, and it is so powerful to see the gospel prefigured in the Old Testament. At the same time, I don't want us to think that someone can't be a Christian unless they know the Bible, Mm -hmm. or that someone can't live a life pleasing to God unless they know the Bible, because 
according to scripture, <laughs> you know, and that you don't need to read the Bible mm-hmm. to live a righteous life. Paul strongly links, I mean, really says that the coming of Christ is the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham. Mm-hmm. That really this faith is the faith of Abraham. You know, we say it's the faith of Christ, and it is. But Christ is the seed of Abraham. He is that uh, fruitful, pregnant, you know, um, offspring of Abraham. He's the, and, and the beauty is, is that in almost, you know, in the languages I'm aware of, so English, Greek, um, Hebrew, the word seed is a collective noun. So when, when God says, you know, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your seed, so Israel reads that and they say, well, that's us. <laughs> and Paul says, yes, but it's also an individual. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's this individual who becomes the means whereby the faith of Abraham is now distributed. So Abraham and God, you know, we don't really realize God takes not 25 years, probably more like 41 years building faith in Abraham. When God first comes to Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees, he says, leave your father's house, your family, go to a land that I'll show you. What we don't really get is is that Abraham didn't go. Not when he was in Ur. I think he went and talked to his dad, Tira, and he says, hey, this God came, and he told me I needed to leave, and and, sorry, Dad, you know, and and Dad's like, well, why don't we just all go together? (laughs) And Abraham at this time is like, that sounds like a good compromise. And so they all load up and they move, but they only make it a little ways. They make it to Haran, right? Right up there at the top of the Fertile Crescent. And they say, this is good enough, right? This is good enough for that God, right, Abram? I guess, Dad. And it's like, all right, cool, right? <laughs> it's not until Tira passes away that Abram continues his journey. We don't even really, if you put it together as you read, because in 12, it looks like Abram gets this call and moves away, but... But as you get farther into the story, God says, remember back when I called you at Ur? You know, I, I called you back when you were at Ur. And so if we go and we do retroactive continuity to the story and we look and we say, Abram didn't really believe God enough to leave. He took his whole family with him. And then when, he, when his dad finally passed away, that was a catalyst. He was ready to continue the journey. But even then, he didn't leave everything. He takes a lot. He takes like 300 people from his house and everything he owns. So he's, he's not, you know, this father of faith at the moment. He's, he's moving slowly, and, and God is developing faith in this man over time. And God's not faulting him. He's not penalizing him. He's not throwing him out. When we finally get to Genesis 22, you know, take your son, your only son, your Isaac, whom you love. God has been working faith in Abram, Abraham now for 41 years, if we assume Isaac is 16. That's a long time. If God has to work that kind of faith, it take 41 years. And I, I think we can assume Abram, Abraham uh, was a, a unique individual, somebody who had a, a unique potential to, to have this faith forged in him. So let's just say that most people don't qualify, and those who do, it takes 41 years to get that kind of faith in them. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just not going to work, <laughs> right? That's just not that's not uh, feasible. So that's not going to work as a plan to save the world, right? Right. If that uh, kind of faith is required to get to, to make a, a multitude, uh, right? That, that God promised to Abraham, right, and to himself, 
really, um, because God is reproducing himself through Abraham. Um, he's reproducing Jesus through Abraham. So all that to say, when I say we don't need the Bible, we, we maybe I'll say it this way. We need as much Bible as Abram had. Abraham didn't have any Bible. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, like a history with God. Right. And so some of the stories that are in the Bible are Abraham's stories. Right. Encounters with God. Mm-hmm. What are you saying, Nathan? Right. I, I'm saying that if we are in the covenant of Abraham, the, the one that is promise and faith in the promise, uh, then that is enough. You know, it's, it's good enough for the Hebrew children, right? It's good enough for the uh, wandering Jews. And, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And they had nothing. Yeah. Well, but we, we do have a Bible now. We do. And uh, I don't think anyone would deny that um, you can't walk up to somebody on the street, proclaim the gospel to them, and uh, they could come to faith in Christ mm-hmm. right then and there. But, you know, then I, I think, you know, most people would say, well, then they need to get into church and we need to get them a Bible, uh, teach them how to study the Bible and the things, you know, how you live your life through, you know, all these scriptures. Sure. And, you know, get them in a Sunday school class, you know, mm-hmm. something like that so that they're being, you know, taught these, these things so that they know how to actually live out their faith. I mean, that's right. usually yeah. what... We tell people to do right. <laughs> what we've been saying in this podcast is that that may may be well and good in some ways to give people a background understanding of their faith, but we may end up making them into good moralists and legalists in the process. So inadvertently, maybe we take that simple seed of faith, that Abrahamic faith that maybe they they had right there on the street corner when they first got saved, mm-hmm. but then somewhere along the way, we've kind of traded them maybe a new set of guidelines? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think most of the time those guidelines aren't the Bible. I mean, we don't sit someone down and say, you know, hey, don't boil a kid, a goat, in its mother's milk. Don't, you know, only eat things that both split the hoof and chew the cud, you know. And, You're and, talking about that weird Old Testament Right, stuff. right, right. So, you know, when we say follow the Bible, we don't, we don't mean any of that except tithing, <laughs> which is a weird Old Testament thing that does not exist in the New Testament. I'll say it again, um, but we retain it for whatever reason. Well, we need money. Right, that's the big thing. Yeah, tithing is important. And uh, it's a lot easier to budget if we can, you know, kind of um, speculate as to what everybody out there is earning, and then we can run the numbers and say, okay, 10% of every household income in this church, and then we can budget around it, right? <laughs> As if that ever actually worked. No, it doesn't. But, you know, we, we keep guilting. We'll keep guilting until we get there. Uh, you know, when it's time to get business done, law is very is a very helpful thing. Uh, at any rate, that's, that's all cynical. All, all that to say is, is that sometimes our injection of, of biblical, quote-unquote, biblical virtues and stuff is, is just our attempt to bring people on to point. We're very selective about it. We don't say, hey, you know, here in Luke it says, sell everything you have and give to the poor, even though Jesus very clearly says, so then every one of you who doesn't sell everything he has and give to the poor cannot enter in the kingdom of heaven. 
<laughs> you we, know, we omit, pretty clear. We omit you know? instruction. Right, right, right. So we, we find, we're, we're like, well, yeah, but, you know, Zacchaeus, uh, he didn't, you know. Uh, and we find all these people. And, and, and I agree. I agree. Uh, it's, it's simply that this cookie-cutter approach, you know, Alex, you'd said that, um, or I think both of you were talking about this idea of, of imitating Christ, and, and that we, we kind of see that as the the job that we have, and it's up to us to imitate him. And so, but but that can be pretty dangerous for us because we read about his life in the New Testament. Well, one, the guy wasn't married. So if you're married, you're always you're already in some tension. You're already in kind of a tug of war because, you know, it's like, well, I uh, I want to follow Jesus, so bye, uh, you know, and just walk out the door because that's what he did, right? And and I'm going to spend 40 days in the wilderness, and if I survive that, then I'll be back. And, you know, uh, you really want to follow him in his steps and go ahead, but the rest of us are failing in that standard, and we know it, okay? So if you say, well, my standard is to be like Jesus, then you've already failed in terms of Jesus of Nazareth. You're not like him. And those who are like him are really insufferably judgmental jerks uh, most of the time. They, it, there are a few people out there who've actually, as a young man, maybe they came to be believers in Jesus, and they, they kind of disavowed all their property, and they went and they lived among the poor. But if you spend any time with them, they disdain you. <laughs> you know, because you've not done with and And what they've done is cost them a lot. And... Maybe they're they're really experiencing the kingdom and all that, but they also have no room for others who don't do that. And so how do we have a church when the vast majority of all Christians are just not meeting scratch? Um, and, and there's just a really a judgmental sense. There's a, key, a hero complex. You know, I had a friend, and he really he kind of did all that. I mean, he really got into it, and he... Uh, you may have even met him, but it's like he moved into the train depot and he, you know, was just ministering with the homeless and with addicts and he just like baptized like 19 people in a fountain at UBC one night. I mean, all this stuff was happening, but along the way, he's also getting into fights at frat houses and needing me to bail him out of jail and living in my basement and drinking a fifth of vodka and, you know, leaving bottles of pee around and, you know, stealing money from my kid's piggy bank because he doesn't have money for Snickers, you know? And so it's like this idea, following Jesus around, if it was going to work, then the 12 disciples wouldn't have been such idiots, and you read the Gospels and you say, well, these guys were no better at the end than they are at the beginning. Actually taking Jesus as a cookie cutter, Jesus of Nazareth, and saying, I'm going to do the things that this guy does, results in that kind of life. Somebody who's not impressive, really, and someone who has no genuine insight. But, and Jesus says, it's better for you that I go away, because if I go away, then, then the helper's going to come, Right? And then, but the helper can't come until Jesus is glorified. So we have to have the gospel. We have to have the spirit. Those are the things. Paul says that Christ has become a life-giving spirit. He says, though we knew Christ Jesus according to the flesh, we don't know him this way, that way anymore. Okay, so to, to take Jesus of Nazareth as our example is to go backward into something that's not helpful. To take 
the faith of the son expressed at the cross as the means, the vehicle whereby Abrahamic faith, this faith that conquers death, is activated in us to accept our acceptance, to all of that. That becomes the spirit of Christ in us. And every one of us is going to have a different expression of that. So you can be married or single or a woman or a child or a very old person. Uh, You can be a multimillionaire or deeply impoverished. It just doesn't matter whoever you are, whatever you're doing. This spirit of Christ can be expressed in your unique circumstance and God will be glorified and he'll have all these children who don't look exactly the same. But is that because there's this core message about self-giving love and, um, you know, trusting the Father in whatever circumstance you're in and whatever relationships you have and whatever conditions of life you have? That it's this simple message about self-giving love, the mm-hmm. Father and the Son's self-giving love, and my son ship faith in the father right. and living by faith and living a life of love and that's simple enough yes and um transferable enough mm-hmm. to create a multitude of yes Abra- for for abraham and for god yes i mean and well, let's just think about a, a mom with small children okay now, if this, if this lady has this kind of self-giving love and this death-defying faith, okay, then as she's raising her kids, she's going to give herself for them and to them, but they will never become ultimate in her life. That She can't turn them into an idol because she's always rooted in this relationship with her father. Okay? And, and so it, there's both this, this giving of love, but there's also um, a governing influence that inhibits that tendency that some women have, and, and men as well, to idolize their children, to, turn, to put their hopes in them, or to turn them into the object of their ultimate adoration. But they can't do that if they really have the gospel resident in them because that faith, that sonship faith is mitigating the self-giving love in a, to a degree in that it doesn't become enabling. It doesn't become this kind of entitlement or spoiling. Um, they don't hang their hopes on that child. They don't create some prefabricated vision of what that child will become because they are loved and they don't have the insecurities that the child would have to prop up at the same time. Um, they have uh, ultimate trust that God is in charge. So whatever their child becomes is okay. You know, they're, they're good with that, that the stakes go down and they're not, they don't need this child to perform in any particular way or to, I mean, even embrace faith. Uh, we want them to, but we know that, hey, God's got it in the end. When, even when things are bleak and there's no light at the end of the tunnel, we ought to still have hope now. It affects us. It grieves us, but it's not going to destroy us because we still have that hope. So we can raise children in a way that is, is measured and helpful. So there's one expression of the gospel in a very mundane, simple, day-to-day kind of a thing. Now, if we are around people and we see a, a mother who she just just doting on this child and, and just 
you know, can't possibly accept any sort of, say, critique of her, of, of him or of her treatment of him, then we need to say as a community, hey, we live this by faith. We're not, you know, our, our children are, you know, sometimes people take the gospel as permission to become this kind of enabling sort of a parent. And, and we have to hold that intention and say, no, you're not that. So that's just one example, I think. And, and unfortunately, church, we, we say, come and your children will become everything you hope they will be. And they will. And, and what a big fat lie. And, and it's not the gospel. It's a great way to fill pews, but it's not the gospel. Um, and so it, that's just one instance. Someone working a job, you know, and he's just thinking about, He's overqualified and he needs to be promoted, whatever. Well, that's not the gospel, is it? The gospel is if you're in this job, God knows you're there. He has you there. He loves you there. You know, you can let go of the the discontent. I think a lot of us try to derive energy from discontent. Really, if you put together... Um, self-giving love and death-defying faith, what you get, when you add those together, they equal peace. We become agents of peace in this world. As a community, as individuals, we bring in shalom. The Prince of Peace comes into our lives and is expressed through us because we don't have to win every argument we don't have to salvage our ego. Um, we don't have to get whatever's at stake. You can have it. And I think about the time when Jacob and Esau reunited after Jacob had been with Laban. And Jacob is sure Esau's going to annihilate him. He's coming with 400 men. Maybe Esau wanted to and changed his mind. I don't know what's happening, but Esau is coming toward Jacob. Jacob is heading back, you know, so Jacob is traveling west. And Esau is coming from the west. He's going east, and they're meeting there uh, at Peniel. And and Jacob has had already had his major conflict with God. He, Jacob's kind of resolving all of his conflicts uh, in this. And when he sees Esau, and Esau accepts him, the two of them have this moment where they're trying to outgive each other, and and so. Esau says, what is, what are all these flocks and herds mean? You know, why have you sent all these? And he says, man, these are gifts. These are just for you. And Esau says, you don't need to do that. I have, I have plenty or I have a lot. He says, and, um, and Jacob says, no, please, please keep them. He says, now that you have received me, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. And I have all I need. Those who've seen the face of God, this loving face of God, they have all they need. And somebody who has all they need has no need to fight. Mm-hmm. Amen. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Email us your questions at discussion at faithrecoverypodcast.com. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.